Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Jonathan Barrent, who is an assistant professor at Tel Aviv University and a scientist with the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence Israel office. He is going to talk to us today about semantic parsing, which he has done a lot of work on at Stanford and other places. Jonathan, welcome. It's, it's good to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So I guess to start off this topic, could you give us a brief overview of what semantic parsing is? It's probably broad. Yeah, sure. So semantic parsing is traditionally defined as a task where you get as input, a natural language utterance, it's a question or maybe a command. And your goal is to map it or translate it to a meaning representation that is executable. That's the, the key uh, property. It's uh, something that you can execute in a particular context, like database, a knowledge graph, uh, some environment, robotic environment, or something like that. So translation from language to a program, basically. So I hear semantic parsing used in a few other ways in the NLP community. For instance, semantic dependency parsing, or people call parsing to abstract meaning representation, or AMR, they call this semantic parsing. What's the difference between what you just described and these other tasks? Yeah, so I guess semantic parsing is ambiguous. Uh, I gave a class on ESLI a few years ago where I called it executable semantic parsing, uh, just to be more precise. Both of these fields are about taking a language and mapping it to a meaning representation, but uh, AMR and semantic dependencies and things like that are more about broad coverage parsing. So you take any sentence and your goal is to have some meaning representation of it that is not just maybe predicate argument structure, maybe captures some semantic phenomena. What do you do with it later? You can decide, but it's not executable, immediately executable. So it's broad coverage, but you can't really do something with it directly. Uh, executable semantic parsing is more in the context of getting a mean representation that has a very precise algorithm later that does something with it in a particular context. So you get a full meaning representation which, you know, maybe QASRL doesn't have a full meaning representation, but you get like the full meaning representation in a particular context. In the context that you have this program, you can execute it and get precise results or denotation. So as you were talking, I was thinking that maybe AMR and semantic dependencies are much more linguistic or tied to like the words in the utterance that you get. They're more lexical. There's a almost a one-to-one -one mapping. You could go backwards. I guess AMR, it's it's not exactly trivial to go backwards, but in, in a lot of cases you can you can like it's much more tied between this meaning representation and the language. But then I remembered actually semantic parsing has its roots in CCG, combinatory categorical grammar and other things, which actually were a lot more tied. And also you you mentioned like directly executable. CCG had like lambda calculus. Is this directly executable enough? I mean, it had a meaning representation in the form of lambda calculus, but there was no context in which you can executed to see, to verify whether what you have got uh, is correct. And about your previous remark, I guess, like, as you said, like, in many of these semantic parsing tasks, you build a representation over the input. So you have a tree where the leaves are actually words in the sentence. But as you said later, it's not always true. In AMR, it's not like that. But there is some usually roughly one-to-one -one alignment. 
between uh, the input and the output. In semantic parsing, up until sequence-to-sequence models entered the field, it was also a little bit like that. So you had CKY-style parsing algorithms where you would build a tree over the input, and you had somehow to make up for the fact that not always there's a one-to-one mapping. So I'm not sure it's a fundamental difference, but it is true that once you have an application at the end, then sometimes you have to be more faithful to the actual application. You have some executor that has its own language and you cannot stay very faithful to the linguistic structure that you get with the natural language. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. Thanks. I guess uh, I was pushing on this a little bit just to like get a scope for what we're, what it is that we're talking about. There are, there are a lot of things that in some sense try to map language to some more abstract or formal meaning representation. There are a lot of different ways to do this. We're talking today about a specific one where you could think of it as as a program in some programming language or Lambda calculus, something that we want to actually execute in some context, as you say. Yeah. So I guess, as I said, like in AMR, you know, maybe some things are underspecified by the formalism. I don't think it encompasses all of formal semantics, right? But in semantic parsing, in the particular context that you're at, it's a full meaning representation in the sense that you can execute. Right. So in, in what circumstances might you want to actually do this? So the, the classical ones are things like uh, question answering. So let's say you have a large knowledge base and you want to ask which Hollywood actor had the most co- co-actors. I don't know how do you say co-actor. I guess that's not a word, but you get what I mean. So you have a knowledge graph and you can translate this into a query over that uh, knowledge graph and it's a non-trivial query. So this is a question answering over large knowledge bases. A very popular nowadays application is virtual assistants. So we have mobile phones, they have a lot of applications, and we would like to operate those using the most natural way that we can, which is natural language. So maybe I want to say something like, uh, please uh, set a timer for 15 minutes before I have to leave to watch the, whatever, what was it? The Warriors-Raptors game. So this, you know, it's quite complex. You need to have some meaning representation that will kind of uh, interact with how much time it takes to get to a certain place, finding when that game starts, setting it with reminder application. So this is a very contemporary example of virtual assistant application. So these are, I would say, like, these are the main two, uh, answering questions and executing some kind of command, like booking a tick, a flight ticket or something like that. But you can view it more broadly. So now there's also a lot of work on uh, text-to-code where you can use semantic parsing as an assistant for developers. Maybe they want to retrieve some code or maybe write automatically some code. So that's an, another natural application. And people have extended this even further, right? So... Uh, uh, Ice Pasupat had interesting work on how you can use semantic parsing to answer questions over semi-structured tables. How can you can use uh, semantic parsing uh, style algorithms to kind of like automatically fill forms or click on a bunch of buttons in a web page in order to accomplish some task and so on. Great. So what kind of uh, quality do we expect uh, for some of these applications? Is it practical to expect them to be like functional in the real world or... Is it still in the research phase? I mean, I think uh, if you have a specific domain and you want to build an assistant for that particular domain, nowadays it's possible to collect data and train supervised parsers such that it's useful and it's actually done in places like Google and other places. You know, if you want cross-application understanding and complex co-reference and very conversational things, then things might break down. You know, also in uh, companies, things are also 
not fully learn. Sometimes you can write grammars and do various things in order to make your learning problem easier. So I do think it's uh, it's actually out there in our phones, but it is limited in scope to uh, you have a particular application that you're interested in and you build a semantic parsing for that application. So you've talked about question answering and instruction following virtual assistant kinds of stuff. One thing you did not mention was broad-based natural language understanding, like systems that can actually read text and do stuff with it. Do you think this kind of semantic parsing has a role to play there in the future? Or is it just always going to be limited to these question answering, command following kinds of applications? Well, I guess, what do you mean by broad language understanding? I mean, I think, you know, questions and commands are definitely part of natural language. That is quite rich. I mean, what is the role of, I don't know, machine translation in language understanding? That, that's a totally fair question. What I, what I meant was, let's say I have a longer document and I want to understand what this document means. Do you see semantic parsing playing a role? Yeah, so I guess this is a little bit uh, an open question. So definitely you can cast this as semantic parsing. By combining semantic parsing and information extraction, you can cast this reading problem in the same way. You can say, okay, my goal is to understand text. So I'll have the information extraction part that takes the unstructured text and constructs a knowledge base, a knowledge graph, some structured representation that is the meaning of the text. And then if I have a question over that, uh, in order to test whether I understood the, the text or not, I can uh, parse that into a query over over that structured representation. In 2014, we had a paper that tried to do that. This is not the common approach nowadays with uh, end-to-end neural networks that are fully end-to-end differentiable, but it has inspired work on uh, neural modular networks, right? So I'm sure Jacob Andreas had semantic parsing in mind when he thought of neural modular networks where you have these modules that are kind of like these sub-programs. So I think it does inspire uh, language understanding in general and might play a role. You know, it might not be exactly executing questions over structured representations, but some aspects of it can be considered part of broad language understanding, I think. Great. Yeah, I want to come back to neural module networks a bit later. But I, I think for now, we've gotten a good handle on what semantic parsing is, what we're talking about here when we say executable semantic parsing and on places where you might actually use this. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you might build a system that translates from language to some kind of executable representation? So at the highest level, you have the model and the executor, right? So you have something that takes as input natural language and outputs a program. Then you have the executor that takes the program and does some, something with it in the context, in the environment. Uh, usually the executor is fixed, so you don't do a lot of stuff about it. So we mostly focus on the first part, on the translation part of the model. And that you can also divide into two parts. So one part is like uh, the structural part, and the other is the statistical part. So what I mean by structural part, I mean that given an input natural language utterance, you have a, something like a grammar that defines, uh, you know, usually a finite set of possible outputs for that input. And, and that is a pretty large set. It, you know, grows exponentially with the size of the input, but it also rules out a lot of things that are impossible, you know, like programs that don't compile or various other constraints that you can, uh, impose on this. So basically, there's no numbers here, right? It's just like completely structured. It's like a formal language thing. You have a formal language and you have some grammar. And this, these are the set of things that can be the output. And then on top of that, you have some statistical model 
that assigns some score, some probability for each one of those. And your goal is to learn a model that will assign high probabilities for the correct translation given the input and low probabilities for those that are incorrect. So the model is like there's a grammar part, a structural part, and a statistical part. And because uh, this space is really, really large, then you usually need also a parser. So something that given an input and the possible outputs according to the grammar will actually output the program that has the highest probability. And because the search space is very large, this is a non-trivial problem. Uh, you know, if your features decompose, you can do CKY, but nowadays they never decompose. So people do things like beam search and basically have to solve the search problem of finding the highest probability program according to your current model. So that's the parser. And I guess maybe the last thing is if your training is non-trivial, if you're training from what's called the denotations or something like that, then there's also the learning algorithm, which we can or cannot go into. Um, so I guess these are the things. There's like the executor, the model has a grammar and statistical model, and you have a parser for solving the argmax problem of finding the highest probability program, and you have a learning algorithm. Wow, so that's a whole lot of moving parts for what sounded originally like a, a relatively simple problem of translating language to programs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like a sequence-to-sequence -sequence model, but you have a grammar that constrains your output. And just like a sequence-to-sequence -sequence model, you know, need to solve the argmax problem by doing beam search. And just like sequence-to-sequence -sequence model, you have some objective, which might be maximum likelihood. So it's just like translation, except there's a grammar on the output. And then you can do also other stuff if you want, if that makes, simplifies it. Yeah, yeah, that, that might be nice for current listeners. I guess thinking five years ago before we moved to these seek-to-seek -seek models, it was in fact a whole lot more complicated because you had a lexicon that said for every word in my input question or command, these are the possible little program pieces that, that this word might map to. And I have to do chart parsing to go from the individual words up to a, a full program in really complex ways. But nowadays you can even just do a seek-to-seek -seek model without a grammar uh, at all and hope cross your fingers, that it works. Yeah, I guess that transition was a bit abrupt though, right? Like, you know, uh, 2015, as you said, people were building logical forms or programs over the input. You get like the input, you do a tree where the leaves are the words, you do like some CKY style search algorithm and so on. Uh, and then like very quickly, it was just sequence to sequence where there's absolutely no alignment between the output program and the input except for the attention mechanism. And I actually think, you know, there's might be something in the middle that makes more sense even nowadays. So there was like maybe a second in time in the universe where I was working with Ice and Prissy and other people on what's called a floating parser that was this like hybrid creature where you can uh, build trees that are partially over your input. Some subtrees actually align to your input and some subtrees don't and you can like have a stronger notion of compositionality and in a sense both like model the fact that the structure of the program might align well with the structure of the language but also sometimes when it doesn't kind of like you know use learning to overcome this obstacle but the neural revolution basically wiped this out and I kind of think you know it might be back and using grammars on the output side also is a a little bit of a way to say that it has returned. 
But I don't think like the full spectrum was explored in a very scientific way, methodologically. Do you agree? You've, you've, done, you've done a lot of work on that too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was going to ask if you could comment on like the pros and cons of going from this CKY chart style parsing to the seek to seek models. Like what do you gain and what do you lose? You kind of touched on that in what you just said, but I wonder if you could expand on it a little bit. Yeah, so moving to a sequence-to-sequence model, as you said, it just simplifies things a lot. You just have a fully differentiable end-to-end model where the way that you decode the output is completely free. You don't have any alignment. Whenever you decode a token, like a knowledge base constant, you know, maybe it's like some knowledge base about uh, papers, if you decode the constant about some author, you know, it's not aligned explicitly to any input token. It's just explicitly aligned through an attention mechanism. So it's very, very simple. You don't have to learn this hard alignment at all. So it makes things easier to develop. Like the speed with which you can develop things is higher. But on the other hand, your search space becomes huge, right? So now you're like, unconstrained, you can do whatever you want in order to generate the program. And you need to overcome this very difficult uh, search problem where basically any program is possible. The lexicon was extremely useful in restricting the search space. If every word in the input can only map to like maybe 10 things, then the search space was much more manageable and you can do things like CKY. And now we basically shifted the burden from search to learning. You assume that, you know, by LSTMs and LSTMs are just have such high capacity, they're so powerful, that you will not really need any sophisticated search. Um, Just a simple beam search, left to right or top down if you're decoding trees, will be enough. I don't think this is true. I don't think it's correct. I think at some point this breaks, but for existing data sets, it obtains similar performance. Yeah, I think there, there are two places in particular where this breaks down. One is when you have weak supervision, that is, instead of instead of having my training data be my inputs be questions and my outputs be programs, and I have labeled programs to train a system, if instead of that I have just like the denotation, the answer or the result of following a command, if that's all I have and I have to figure out which programs map to the correct answer or to the correct execution, then it's really, really hard to train this thing in the absence of, of some kind of lexical information because, as you say, the search problem is just impossible. There are a number of papers, including one by your group, one from me, other people that, that show that you basically make no progress at all if you just try to do a search-based training algorithm when all I have is a seek-to-seek model and answer supervision. You need some kind of additional lexical information. Yeah, I mean, but both our groups uh, train from denotations, right? So we still use this model where you don't have any explicit alignment, but you, you, you can do other stuff like you had the knackle now, more iterative search or whatever auxiliary information you can find to try to uh, still solve this problem. In the past, I worked on like large scale stuff on Freebase. I think there when like the number of constants that you have is, you know, you can have like thousands of possible knowledge base constants per word. I think there it would not work at all, even for simple questions, probably. Well, you can always maybe bridge that using embeddings or something. Yeah, yeah. And the other place where this this approach falls down, I think, is when you have very templated or or rather it's really easy for the LSTM to memorize templates and not generalize to new syntactic structures. And so there have been a few works that show that if you if you change the way you split the data to have logical form structures be held out at test time, 
you show that these LSTM-based models fall down pretty miserably at generalizing to new kinds of things. Yeah, I think this is a super, super important point. Like the whole point of semantic parsing, I mean, regardless of like the, the application, I think it's like, in my head, it's something very nice in terms of compositionality. You have the way that the parts of the language map to the meaning of the whole, and you have the way that the parts of the uh, program map to the meaning of the whole, and you would like to learn this in a compositional way. And this should be like the case where you show most clearly that even though you train on, I don't know, like trees of depth until depth five, this should generalize to deeper trees. But this work by Dragomir Radev's student, Catherine, really showed that this is not the case, that it just memorizes uh, templates. It's unclear to me. So I think there they did not have a grammar on the output side. Do you, do you remember? They didn't in that work, no. Right. So, I mean, I'm wondering if you actually decode trees, whether that would improve. But it was like a quite substantial hit in uh, accuracy. Actually, I have a work in submission now. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it or not. That tangentially has a similar finding. Basically, it's not the focus of our paper, but we also observe this very strong memorization effect. And this is, I think, it's really important to investigate this further. I mean, this is uh, ridiculous to some extent. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it kind of defeats a lot of the original intent, as you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If not here, then where, in a sense. So now that we've gotten more of an overview of all of the pieces of a semantic parser, it might be interesting to come back to neural module networks, which I I asked Jacob Andreas about this on Twitter a while ago uh, after a previous episode where we mentioned these. And he agrees with me in saying that these are basically semantic parsers with learned execution modules. Do you want to expand on this or do you want me to? So uh, neural module networks that was proposed by Jacob Andreas the idea is that uh, you have these modules whose parameters are tied that perform these specific uh, functions. And so in, Im in images, which was the application where it was used most, you have something like, what is the color of the object that is held by some uh, person? So you have these uh, modules that are repeated across examples. You need to learn how to find a certain object uh, in the image conditioned on some word. And then you need to learn that, I forget my example, that left of is some relation that tells you if you're looking at one object, you should move your attention to the left. And then at the end, you answer by extracting the property of color. So all these are, there are there's, there's like a small set of atomic modules. Uh, one for finding objects, one for changing the attention from one object to the other based on some relation, and so on. And these, each one of these modules is a, its own neural network that has parameters that are shared across all of the examples. And the parameters of the networks are trained end-to-end. Uh, -end. So you can, I don't know what you guys talked about exactly, but you can use this as semantic parsing, where given a sentence, you basically construct this uh, tree that uh, assembles modules where the input is the sentence, the input to the modules is the sentence, and the output is the answer. And the parameters are basically learning the executor. So you learn, given the word ball, to find in the image the object ball and, you know, pick it from, from the image. So to summarize, we basically have two learning problems here. One is mapping language to a program 
this is the traditional semantic parsing problem that we've been talking about this whole time. It's just these programs are themselves modules that are learned. And so we need to learn both the mapping from the language to the program and the execution of the program at the same time, and typically with only the answer as supervision. And so this is an extremely hard learning problem. And this is why I think it hasn't really been successfully used in language as of yet, though we'll see. Yeah, I actually saw now in iClear, well, I haven't into iClear, I just read it, a paper by Josh Tenenbaum's group, where they have something called Neural Concept Learner. Did you see that? Where they do map the question into a program. Like the executor is not learned. They just have an executor over vector space. So your program has some functions and these functions just do things in vector space. So instead of like some non-differentiable operation, it is relaxed to some differentiable operation. So instead of intersection, you might have, I don't know, multiplication or things like that. I think it's an interesting approach. Like the, you, you write an executor that is deterministic, that is applied in vector space. So an image is transformed to vectors. A question is transformed to a program. And the program is executed with this differentiable executor that does things over vectors in the image. You can think about that as like a spectrum, right? Like uh, on one end of the spectrum, there's like fully end-to-end -end differentiable models. You know, RNNs, CNNs, there's the Mac architecture from Drew Hudson and Chris Manning that is just fully end-to-end -end differentiable. Maybe the architecture is kind of like biased towards reasoning. And then in the other end of the spectrum, there's semantic parsing, where you actually map the question to a program and execute it. And then the middle, there's other stuff, right? So neural modular networks is somewhere in the middle where the executor is learned. And then there's work by uh, Nitish Gupta and Mike Lewis and also this Josh Tenenbaum work where kind of uh, design your executor to be differentiable. So you don't learn the executor, but everything is kind of like differentiable by design. So I actually think this spectrum is super interesting in terms of like, how does it affect generalization? How does it affect sample complexity? How much data is needed? This is, I think, a really interesting direction. Yeah, I agree with you, as evidenced by the fact that I'm actively working in this space. So yes, I think this is very interesting. I'd like to move on to a different but related topic. How does the programming language that you're parsing into affect the performance or the characteristics of your parser? So I don't think there was a lot of work on that. I think if I remember correctly, the original Zell and Mooney paper on Geo 880, they kind of like say briefly, you know, we're going to parse language to a lot to some, uh, you know, executable program, but we're not going to use SQL because it's super weird. Uh, instead, we're going to use something more like Lambda Calculus, just, just as an argument. It's just like, that's what they said without any experiment. And indeed, like uh, Geo880 is kind of like Lambda Calculus based and all the work by Luke starting from 2005 is based on CCGs and Lambda Calculus, kind of like originating, I think the motivations were more linguistic for Mark Steedman and so on. It was more about like understanding of language rather than the uh, application itself. So the logical forms and data sets were in this uh, Lambda Calculus uh, format. Then later, there was a little bit of work on Lambda DCS uh, from uh, Percy Liang. And then in recent years, there's like a lot of work on SQL just because it's very ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So I don't think there's like a very clear paper that kind of like clearly compares them. But there's a lot of evidence, I think, out there. So recently, there was a paper on the spider data set uh, where they showed that by like translating, moving from SQL. So SQL has this property. Okay, maybe, maybe let me step back for a second. 
I think there's two ways in which the formal language matters. One is how well it aligns with the natural language. So, you know, uh, maybe in natural language, you kind of have these adjacent phrases that compose such that the meaning of the entire span is a function of the meaning of uh, its parts. But maybe on the formal language, it might not be like that. So maybe in SQL, you know, the way that they wrote it, they didn't think about parsing. They thought about, I don't know, like other considerations like having fast queries. So they have things like, you know, select something from something where blah, 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 blah. And then there's something like group by whatever. So whatever is after group by is really, really related to what the columns you selected. But those are extremely far away in the output language. Uh, so the way that the natural language expresses it, these things might be close to one another, and then the way that it's expressed uh, on the output side might be very, very different. This problem of the fact that the way that the composition of the, la the natural language is different from the composition of the formal language might make things harder. And this is evidenced by a recent paper where they showed that when they translate SQL to some nicer language, they get substantial gains on the, what, the spider data set from Yale. So this is one, one I, I think, one axis, like whether things kind of like compose nicely and align well with a natural language. There's also the granularity aspect. So you might have like words in natural language that mean like a huge thing in the formal language. So when I was working on Freebase, I had this example where the word uh, expat, uh, which is a single word in natural language, was a huge query over Freebase. It's the people that were born in one country and are now living, living in a different country. So, uh, the fact that sometimes language has these high-level phrases that mean very, very detailed things in that particular language can also cause problems. So in general, what we would want is that the formal language would align well with the natural language. The more it aligns well, I think the problem becomes easier, even though, you know, when the questions are short and uh, there's a lot of data and the BioSDM has a lot of capacity, it might not matter that much. I think that uh, this paper that we talked about that talks about generalization, I think there it probably should matter. I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but if the formal language is nice, you might expect to generalize better compared to if the formal language is very, very, doesn't align very well with the natural language. Yeah, that matches my intuitions a lot. We're getting a little bit low on time. I want to. I have two questions left that I want to be sure that we ask you. Um, the first one is, what do you think are the most interesting current data sets for semantic parsing research? If I'm just getting into semantic parsing now, what should I focus my time on? So, I don't know, at least in my head, like there's various different interesting research questions in semantic parsing, and it depends a little bit on which one you want to focus on. Both of us have been working recently on the SPIDER dataset. The SPIDER dataset is a dataset that contains something like 10,000 uh, natural language questions that are paired with their uh, translation to SQL, where these SQL queries are also accompanied by uh, a database. I, there's hundreds of databases. In a training time, you uh, observe some subset of the databases. And then at test time, you need to parse a new question to SQL given a completely new database that you have never seen before, okay? So you, you've never seen this database. It has arbitrary names for columns and for tables, but you need to understand the language of the question well enough such that you can do that. Sometimes people refer to this as zero-shot semantic parsing in the sense that at test time, your database is new. You haven't observed any examples from that database. I think the zero-shot setup is quite interesting. So we would like, as we said, to have models that generalize well, 
And by uh, being able to generalize from existing databases to new databases, we, I think, show in a more interesting way that we understood the structure of the natural language and the way that it maps to SQL. So I like, I really like the spider data set from Yale from the perspective of the zero-shot aspect. Sometimes I think that the phrasing of the question is not supernatural, but I think, I think there's a lot of interesting research to be done uh, in that direction. They also now have a new data set called Spark that I haven't even seen. It's published now where they add uh, context. So instead of having a single question, you have uh, a sequence of questions, and then you also have problem, um, you know, interesting research questions about co-reference of entities and events, and this probably should also be interesting. I'll jump in here with a little comment about Spider. I was talking with a friend of mine who is a vice president of something at Tableau, and he was very interested in hearing about Spider and wanted to hire anyone who is working on this. I told him that unfortunately there aren't a whole lot of people who actually do this kind of stuff, but this is like exactly the kind of problem that people in industry at a place like Tableau want to solve because they're trying to visualize data for their customers. Every customer is going to have different databases and I want to be able to learn, like answer complex queries over their the customer's tables where I don't know a priori. I don't want to build a specific model for each customer's table. I want a single model that can transfer across all of these. Yeah, so I was talking to Mark Johnson at NACL and he expressed a similar thoughts and also Ben, my student, who uh, as both of us know, we did a lot of did most of the work for uh, our collaboration. So he also has been approached already by I think more than one person. <laughs> so it is interesting for people. I think uh, I think they they did something right with this data set. And creating good data sets is hard, as we know. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what other data sets uh, do you think are interesting for semantic parsing? Again, this is my own opinion, and I'm definitely gonna forget stuff. But I really liked uh, NLVR because uh, from uh, uh, Yoav Artsy and uh, the Cornell group, Elaine Sur, uh, I don't remember if there are any other authors on that paper, uh, where you have uh, a sentence. Now there's also NLVR for real or NLVR2 where you have a sentence and two images and the sentence is very compositional. You know, tell me whether one box has three more yellow triangles than the right box. And you get like an, an image or a knowledge base that describes that image. And the only signal that you get is true or false. So one of the research issues in semantic parsing is what's called spuriousness. The fact that if you are training from denotations, that is, you're only seeing questions and answers and not questions and programs, then you basically have to search for programs that get to the right answer. And in some cases, the number of programs that get to the right answer is extremely large. So if your signal is just true-false, any program that returns true uh, will be correct in the context of an example where the answer is true. So this is a huge spuriousness issue, and I think spuriousness is an interesting research uh, question. So I think that's nice from that perspective. We had some work on SCONE from Stanford, where you have this virtual world and five sentences that describe some actions that you have to do in this world. So, for example, move some person with the red hat to position one and replace his hat from yellow to green or something like that. So you have a, a long sequence of instructions, and then the only supervision that you get is what the word looks like at the end. So you have a, a state, an initial state, what the word looks like at the beginning, a state, what the word looks like at the end, and natural language instructions for how to manipulate the world. And there, uh, the point is that the program is long. 
So you have a very difficult search problem. So if you're interested in search algorithms and coming up with a smart search algorithm or learning to search algorithms where you can, uh, you know, try to overcome a hard search problem, this is like a nice data set to look at. From the perspective of like actually parsing text to code, so people are interested in tools for developers, there's both Konala from Grab Newbig's group, uh, Penchalin and Srini Yer and Luke Zellmore have ConCode. They are more focused on actual code and they have some differences. Uh, and I also like the generalization setup from Yale, where you have to basically generalize to compositions that you have never seen. At training time, you see some way in which uh, language composes into programs, and then at test time, you see completely different ways in which language composes to programs, and this touches upon this generalization issue, which I think is very central. I noticed you didn't mention any of yours complex web questions. Do you view that as a semantic parsing data set? No, it's not so complex web questions. We were aiming to view this more as a reading comprehension task where you are inspired by semantic parsing to do like uh, kind of like what's called multi-hop reasoning nowadays and, you know, do some inference over text. There's some very interesting work from people at Google, from William Cohen's group at uh, Pittsburgh, where they actually treat this as a semantic parsing problem. They have some good results. They're the best results on over complex web questions. And I think that's super cool. Yeah, I guess we did overnight, but I don't recommend using it anymore. And I did web questions in the past, but I don't recommend using that anymore. So, uh, yeah, this is what I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess I agree that the, the interesting data sets to work on these days are the places where there are still interesting open research questions around, say, zero-shot semantic parsing, like you mentioned, or various kinds of weak supervision, so like NLVR, or, or places where you need executable environments. You don't have like a, a, pro, a fixed deterministic execution environment. So things like NLVR2, where you have to operate on the image itself, a natural image that you don't have some like already, uh, already structured uh, representation of what's in the image, or to give a self-serving advertisement myself, um, drop where uh, this is a reading comprehension data set with compositional questions where you probably, for some of these questions, need to execute some kind of program against a paragraph of text, but there is no given programming language. You probably need something like a neural module network or something along those lines. These, to me, feel like the the interesting research directions still in semantic parsing. Yeah, so I guess like uh, I was trying to be strict about the definition of semantic parsing, but I think, even at least for myself, the most, like, what's the main drawback of semantic parsing? Maybe it's related to your question about will it be like general natural language understanding is that, you know, you're constrained to your context, your environment. But I think it's like maybe the most interesting thing is how to be inspired by semantic parsing to do things where you don't have that. So uh, in the paper where we released complex web questions, we basically were motivated by this. Just imagine that a search engine is like your knowledge base and then you can do question answering over the web. Or uh, in images, uh, you know, just imagine that the image is a structure and do something on neural modular networks. So the goal is to be inspired by semantic parsing, which says you get some question and you want like a very full compositional understanding of the question such that you can just deterministically execute it and get an answer. And if we can do that for tables, for text, for the web, for images, 
then that would be super cool. Yeah, great. This this has been a really fun conversation. We're getting close to out of time. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to that we want to talk about in the last bit? I guess one thing maybe that didn't mention, I think this is also like an interesting research problem. So we just touched upon this idea that semantic parsers should cover things that are not in knowledge bases. But I think this virtual assistant thing that is happening in our lives right now, where tons of people are just wanting to develop thousands of natural language uh, interfaces. And for each one of them, you need to train a semantic parser is also like a very fruitful ground for interesting research. How do you do that? How do you develop like thousands of semantic parsers very quickly? And there's a lot of interesting work, uh, both on how to collect the data, on how to use semi-supervised learning, on how to do interactive learning, Basically, how do you start from nothing and then be able to develop, uh, you know, platforms that accommodate thousands of uh, natural language interfaces? Whether you're a startup that wants to have just one or Google that wants to have like a million, I think there's a lot of interesting issues on how to deal with like very, very little data uh, regime. Yeah, this is a big problem, say, with Alexa, if you want to build a skill, for instance, for Alexa. There was a startup that AI2 incubated a few years ago called kit.ai that got acquired by Baidu that was trying to build tools for this space. I know Semantic Machines recently gave a public demo, kind of, of the virtual assistant that they've been trying to build after they recently got acquired by Microsoft. I've reached out to people at Semantic Machines to have them come on the podcast, and they're not ready to yet, but hopefully they will soon, and we'll get some more information about this kind of application. Yeah, I mean, task-based dialogue, which I don't know anything about Semantic Machines, but I think this is something pretty central to what they do. Like, task-based dialogue and contextual semantic parsing is, I don't know if it's even two different things or not. It might be just exactly the same thing, maybe with some generation a little bit. So... Yeah, definitely. I think this is like a huge application of semantic parsing that also has within it tons of interesting research uh, problems. I'm all, I, I have worked on this, but I'm always conflicted whether like the best solution will actually come from uh, people trying to build it or people in academia. I hope that ideas coming from academia inspire also people in the real world trying to build these things. Well, great. Thanks, Jonathan. This has been really fun. Yeah, it was great. I had a great time.